We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. and 10. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may go worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish of the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anything else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. And Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them to wor- in worshiping the Lord our God, and until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied. I will never appear before you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Thanks, Danielle. Let me welcome you to Resurrection Oakland. My name is Brent. And uh, if you were new today, we are so glad that you're here. I would love to get to meet you and learn your name uh, up front after the service. Uh, We are in a series in the book of Exodus. Today we come to one of the most troubling parts of the book of Exodus, And I would even say one of the most troubling parts of the entire Bible. Uh, If you're new, let me just catch you up on where we are in the story. Israel is living as an oppressed people uh, in Egypt under the reign of Pharaoh. And God sees their cries. He, He sees their misery. And God says, this is not okay. This is not the way that I've made things to be. And so I'm going to do something about it. And so last week we looked at Exodus chapter 3, where God calls Moses and he says, Moses, I'm going to set you apart. You are going to be my instrument of liberation. I'm going to use you 
to set these people free. But the only problem is that dictators then are much like dictators today. They do not give up power easily. And so when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God said you better let these people go, Pharaoh pays him no attention. And that actually brings us to our text today, which is the plagues. The plagues are God's response to Pharaoh's refusal to let Israel go. There are a total of 10 plagues. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the firstborn. These plagues occur over six chapters in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 7 through Exodus chapter 12. It is, if you, if you go home and read it, it is six chapters of intense judgment from God. Six chapters of intense suffering. And people really struggle with this. Because we, we read these stories and we say, you know, how could a good God allow suffering like this? And it's not just the story of the plagues, but it's the story of our own lives. It's the story of the city. Many of us have asked that question. If you haven't asked that question, you need to ask that question. That's a really important question to ask as you're trying to make sense of God in the world. That is not the question we're going to answer today. Uh, we're actually going to answer that next week. So there's a teaser for you. Come back to church next week. If you're on the fence, come back next week. Next week we're going to talk about how could a good God allow suffering. But today I want to come at the plagues from a different angle. I want to ask not the how question, but the why question. Why does God send the plagues? And I want to ask it by looking at the first nine plagues. Next week we'll look at the tenth plague, the final plague, which is the death of the firstborn. But today we're going to look at the first nine plagues. The, the first nine plagues take up four entire chapters in Exodus. Exodus chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. We're going to cover all of those today. We're going to cover four chapters today. But because I love you, and because the 49ers have kickoff in just a little bit, we did not read four chapters for you today. We are doing a major flyby of the plagues. What's really interesting when you read these four chapters is that we call them plagues, but you know what Exodus calls them? Signs. That's, that's the main word that you find in Exodus 7 through 10 when it's talking about the plagues. It says that they're, they're signs. Now think with me for just a moment about the purpose of a sign. We have signs all over. I was driving this week and I saw this sign. What does that sign tell you? It tells you cars should not be in that lane. That's what that sign tells you. I didn't think a whole lot about that sign. I was driving. I came up to a stoplight. I was in the right-hand lane, so the bike lane was just to my right. I'm waiting at the stoplight. There was a car parked in the bicycle lane directly to my right, just sitting there. Guy just sitting in his car. A car was turned off. I didn't think much about it until all of a sudden I felt a crash. Not heard a crash. I felt a crash. I look over and a bicyclist has crashed into my side mirror. I, he's standing there. I roll my window down. We are eye to eye. And a lot of things could have come out of my mouth in that moment. But the first thing that came to my mouth was, are you okay? 
I thought, man, I really am a Christian. But that's the first thing that came out of my mouth. I said, God really is in me. Uh, I said, are you okay? He said, dude, I'm so sorry I hit your car. I said, I, I'm aware of that. I know you hit my car. Are you okay? He said, I'm okay. He said, but man, is your, is your car okay? And if you've seen my car, it's hard to do damage to it. But uh, I said, I don't know. You know, let me, let me get out and look. And that is when everything started to change. Because as soon as I got out, he said, dude, I was in the bike lane. I said, you, you were not in the bike lane. That car was in the bike lane. That car is blocking the bike lane. You got out of the bike lane and you hit my car. And he said, and I'm not making this up, literally, this was exactly what he said. He said, dude, I'm an artist. I was in the bike lane, which was his way of saying, I am broke, therefore this was not my fault. I can't, like, I'm not on the hook for this. And a lot of things, I wanted to say a lot of things in that moment, but because the Spirit of God is alive in me, I did not. I said, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Uh, (laughs) Signs are really important. Signs are a big deal. They point you to realities that you need to pay attention to. Realities like keep your car out of the bicycle lane and keep your bicycle out of the car lane. And uh, this is actually why God sends the plagues. They're signs. They're actually meant to point us to something else. What do they point us to? We're going to look at three things today. They point us to a claim, they point us to a warning, and they point us to an invitation. A claim, a warning, and an invitation. So first, uh, the first sign of the plagues is a claim. Now, if you look again at the very first verses we, we read today, it says that afterward Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And when Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? He's not saying he doesn't believe in God. What Pharaoh is saying is he doesn't believe in Israel's God. He doesn't believe in Yahweh. Pharaoh was not an atheist. In fact, no one in ancient Egypt was an atheist. Ancient Egypt was a wildly pluralistic place. I read this week that they had something like 80 major deities that they believed in. Pharaoh was a lot like the average person in Oakland. You know what the average person in Oakland would say? They would say, you've got your God, and I've got mine. Or you've got your truth, and I've got my truth. Believe what you want to believe. Just don't claim your truth to be over and above mine. And the way that most people, maybe even some of you here today, the way that most people imagine spiritual reality is they say this. They say, look, there's this mountain, and God is at the top of this mountain, And what you have is you have all these different spiritual paths up the mountain. Paths like Christianity and paths like Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism and Judaism. They're all just these different paths up the mountain and they're all leading to the same place. Have you ever thought that? And that is, it's a really nice thought actually, but it is problematic 
in two major ways. First, any person who has seriously studied various religions will tell you that they have very, very different belief systems. That they're not just different paths up the same mountain. They're actually on different mountains altogether. They're very, very different. And if you don't think that, you, just, you simply have not really paid attention to them and studied them. The second problem is this. this the, the first sign that these plagues point to, it is a radical claim that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Bible, is making. And that claim is this. He alone is God. There is one God, and he alone is God. And you say, well, where do we see that in the plagues? Well, think about the plagues. Let's start with the first plague. We read it today. We read about the first and the ninth. I kind of gave you the bookends. The first plague was God turns the Nile River into blood. Why does God do this? Well, the Nile, for ancient Egyptians, it was the source of life, of prosperity, of commerce. And because of that, they actually personified the Nile River. They worshipped the Nile River. They had a god known as Hopi, who was the god of the Nile River. And then think about the second plagues. The second plague was frogs. God sends all of these frogs. And you're like, that, that just feels sort of random. I mean, that sounds kind of cute, actually, a bunch of frogs. Hopping. What is God doing? Well, uh, the, the, it feels out of left field to us. It's not out of left field to them. Hecate was another Egyptian god. And Hecate was the goddess of fertility. And you know how Hecate was often symbolized? You can go home. This is true. You can go home and look it up on Wikipedia. It's true. Uh, Hecate was often symbolized as having the head of a frog. And then think about the last plague, which is darkness. Darkness covers the land. Why does God bring darkness? The Egyptians, they had a sun god. The sun god's name was Ra. And every morning when the sun would rise, it was an affirmation of the power of Ra. The sun would rise and people would worship Ra until one day in Exodus chapter 10, the sun didn't rise and there was darkness. And you see what is happening here? The plagues, a lot of us think, wow, the plagues are just these random events or kind of these arbitrary torture tactics that God is sending. No, no, no. These are highly intentional acts where God is systematically defeating the gods of the Egyptians. He is saying, there is, there is no God but me. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the major deities in Egypt all clustered around three great natural forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. And the first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile. The next four plagues were against land gods. And the final four plagues were against the gods of of the sky. God is making a radical claim in the plagues. Here's what the claim is. I am the only God, therefore you should worship me. And you see this claim throughout the plagues and throughout the Old Testament. You see it in, um, in verse 17 of the very first passage we read today, where God says this about the first plague. He says, by this, by this plague, you will know what? That I am the Lord. You see it seven times in the book of Exodus 
When God says to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. God was not merely asking Pharaoh to let, to, to, to let them go. God is actually claiming that he alone deserves their worship. You see it in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34, where it says this, Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs, there it is again, and wonders, by war, by war, by mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things, why? So that you might know that the Lord is God, and besides him there is no other. The first sign that these plagues point to is this radical claim. And I know some of us in this room, we are very uncomfortable with this claim. Because we say religious claims like this tear at the fabric of society. They're, they're, they create intolerance. They create uh, a sense of, of um, feuding between people. They create a sense of arrogance that your religion is better than somebody else's. But before, if that's you, before you just kind of check out and dismiss all of this, let's ask this question. Why is God so concerned that this claim is known and understood by Pharaoh, by the Egyptians, by the Israelites, and by you and me? Why is God so concerned about this claim? And that brings us to the second sign of the plagues, which is they are a warning Plagues are a warning, and here's the warning. The warning is if you worship anything else other than God, it leads to chaos and disorder in your life. See the claim? God says, I alone am God, worship me. And the warning is if you worship anything else other than me, it leads to chaos and disorder in your life. Let me show you where we see this in the text. One of the things... This is really fascinating. One of the things that commentators have all pointed out is that the story of the plagues in Exodus 7 through 10 tells the same story of Genesis 1 and 2, but in the exact opposite order. What do I mean by that? Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of where God creates the world. Genesis 1 verse 2 says this, now the earth was formless and empty, chaos, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. But then what does God do? He looks at the chaos and he looks at the darkness and he says, let there be light. And he begins to create. He begins to create land and water and weather and animals and plants and everything is working in this one cohesive Unit and it goes, it goes from chaos and darkness to light and order and beauty and peace. What we see in Exodus 7 through 10 is the exact opposite. It doesn't go from chaos to order, it actually goes from order to chaos. Creation in the plagues, it is out of control and it begins to revert back to pre-creation chaos. Think about it. In the plague of hail, hail was one of the plagues. In the plague of hail, weather begins to destroy the animals. 
and the plague of the locusts. Animal, uh, insects begin to destroy the plants. Each plague is this undoing of creation. Until we get to the very last plague in our passage today, which is darkness. You know what the plagues are doing by ending in darkness? They're taking us all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 2, where it says, where the earth was formless and empty and darkness is over the surface of the deep. You see this? The creation story goes from darkness to light, but the plagues go from light to darkness. The creation story goes from chaos to order, but the plague story goes from order to chaos. You say, well, that's really, wow, that's really interesting. It's, it's, more, it's meant to be more than just interesting. It's meant to be more than just kind of this cool little biblical insight. The question is, what does this have to do with our lives? What does it have to do with your life? What does it have to do with my life? And friends, this is God's way of saying that he has created you. And he has created you to worship him. He's designed you in such a way that he is to be the most important thing in your life. The thing that gives you joy and meaning and worth and dignity and purpose. And that when you violate that by making anything else in life more central than him, it unleashes chaos and disorder in your life. This is what the Bible calls an idol, actually. An idol is anything that you make more important than God. It's anything that you look to to give you what only God can give you. Significance, meaning, purpose, joy. It's anything that you put in God's place. And when you do that, it unleashes chaos and disorder in your life. So what does that mean? Uh, well, it means two things. First, it, idols lead to internal chaos. They lead to chaos inside of you. Now, I love this. I use this quote about every year because it is so helpful. It's a quote by David Foster Wallace. Some of you may remember him. He was an atheist, uh, a writer. He was giving a commencement address at uh, a university one time, and this is what he said. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is, no, there is actually no such thing as atheism. This is an atheist talking. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He says this, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. What is he saying? This is not a Christian. He is saying everyone worships, and it may not be the Nile or the sun or the moon for you, but it is something. 
What David Foster Wallace says is that anything else you worship more than God makes you fragile and insecure and afraid. In other words, it leads to what? To chaos inside you. This is not what you were made for. But it leads to chaos inside you. And that is the thing about idols. Idols, they always overpromise and they always underdeliver. They promise you more joy, but they leave you with less. They promise you more contentment, but they leave you with less. They probably promise you more security, but they leave you with less. They always lead to an internal chaos. If you really want to know yourself, ask yourself this question. What are the things that are creating fear and anxiety inside of me? What are the things that are creating a sense of chaos inside of me? You'll begin to understand the things that you actually love more than you love God. They lead to an internal chaos, but they also lead, idols, to an external chaos. One of the biggest things that we learn from this story, the story of the plagues, is that your idols don't just affect you. See, think about Pharaoh. Why did Pharaoh refuse to let Israel go? You know why he refused? Because he worshipped power and status. Pharaoh's idols are actually what enabled him to justify his system of oppression. And that is the insidiousness of idolatry. Our idols actually allow us to justify the worst things that we do. This is true on a corporate level. Think about the Atlantic slave trade. How in the world did a nation justify that? We justified it because money was our God. And we said, therefore, some people have inherent, more inherent value than others, and others can be used for profit. Bodies can be sold and owned. It's true on a corporate level. It's true on an individual level that your idols enable you to justify the worst things that you do. It's what enables, it's what enables some people to say, this affair is okay because my spouse has neglected me. It's what enables some of us to say, this, looking at this pornography is not that big of a deal because it's not hurting anybody. Or cheating at school. Or lying at work. That's just, it's okay. It's just what I have to do in order to get where I want to get in life. You see, this is actually why we need to take our idols so seriously. I mean, because they don't just hurt us. They hurt the people, and often they hurt the people we love the most. Some of us, we have ruined, we have severed relationships because of our addictions. Some of us are, we are are ruining our marriages or our ability to be married because money or work or success is too important to us. What is it in your life this morning that is more important to you than God? And how is it hurting you? And how is it hurting others around you? That is is the warning of the plagues. That they always lead to disorder and chaos inside us and outside us. They're undoing us. They lead to 
Death, not life. Misery, not joy. Darkness, not light. And that actually brings us to the last sign of the plagues, which is an invitation. You know, so many, so many of us, we, we come to parts of the Bible like Exodus 7 through 10, and we say, I don't know what to do with this. I'm just going to kind of, going to skim, slash skip, you know. I don't really like this part of the Bible. And I just want you to know that the Bible is dripping with good news for you on every page. And it is often in the places where we are least likely to look where it has the best news for you. These plagues are such an invitation to us. An invitation, invitation of what? Let me, let me illustrate this for you. Imagine a lumberjack who is walking through a forest with an ax in hand. And just before beginning to chop down this large pine tree, the lumberjack looks up and sees a mother bird nesting in the top of this tree. And so not wanting to harm the bird, he tries to scare it off. He takes the back of his ax and he starts hitting the tree. Whack, whack. The bird flies off into another tree. And so the the lumberjack walks up to that tree and he begins to hit that tree. Whack, whack. The bird flies to another tree and the next and the next and the next until finally this mother bird flies out of the trees onto a high cliff of rock to build her nest. Now imagine what that bird must have been thinking in that moment. Who is this maniac? Why won't he leave me alone? Why is he being so cruel? And the answer, unbeknownst to the bird, is that the lumberjack is not cruel. The lumberjack is kind. Because in this life, friends, every tree is coming down. Every every idol, every other God, every other thing that you look to is more important than God. Everything you look to for joy, for meaning, for significance, for purpose, your job, your achievements, your beauty, your youth, even your family and your marriage, one day you will lose all of these things. If circumstances and suffering do not take them from you, one day death will. It is all coming down. Every idol, every tree, every god is coming down except for one. The one true God. And he is so kind that he is inviting you and me to leave the trees and to build our lives on the rock, the one true, sure rock who never changes, who is eternal, and who you will never, ever lose. Who is that? That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what God is inviting us to in this passage. It is the purpose of the plagues. God is saying, listen, your idols cannot protect you. They cannot save you. They cannot help you. You have greater dignity than they can give you. Your love is too precious to be set on them. But I, God says, I can save you. I can help you. 
I can protect you. I am everything and I deserve you. That is the invitation of the plagues. God is inviting us to make him central in our lives. To build our lives on him because he is the only God who when you worship him leads to order and not chaos. He's the only God who actually delivers what he promises. Which is an abundant life. A life full of joy and security and meaning and purpose. And when you belong to him, he sends you out into a chaotic world to be his agent of peace and a blessing. And you see, here's the question. What is going to get you and me to respond to that invitation? What is going to get us to love God above everything else? That question is important for every single person in this room. Not just those who are not yet Christian. It is important for every single person in this room who is a Christian. Because we say we love God. But our lives give us away. Me included. We spend our weeks giving our affections to other things and loving other things more than we love God. What is going to get us to respond to this invitation? I'll tell you what won't work. Me telling you. Me just telling you to go do it. I'll tell you what else won't work. You just trying harder. There's this great old hymn. It's called, Hast Thou, seen him, Hast Thou Heard Him, Seen Him, Known Him? And there's a line in this hymn, and it goes like this. It says, What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. It's going to get us to respond to this invitation, to love God more than we love anything else. It is the sight of of peerless worth. We need something that becomes more beautiful to us than our idols. And this text actually gives it to us. And it gives it to us in the very last plague. Look at this from Exodus chapter 10. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. A darkness that can be felt. And so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky And total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. That's really interesting. The next time that darkness covers the land is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's gospel. It is when Jesus dies on the cross. All four of them say, darkness covered the land. And then what? And then Jesus went into the grave for three days. Do you see what's going on here? There is such good news for us in the plagues. Because in Exodus, darkness and judgment fell on Pharaoh and Egypt. But on the cross, you know who it fell on? It fell on Jesus. The, the essence of sin, the essence of idolatry is that we have substituted other things for God. You know what the essence of salvation is? Is that on the cross, God substituted himself for us. And in Exodus, the false gods are judged to set God's people free, but on the cross, the true God, the only true God, is judged to set God's people free. What we see on the cross is that Jesus 
Jesus took the darkness. The darkness of what? The darkness of God's judgment and wrath so that you and I could have the light of God's love and presence in our lives. And that's what this table is all about. This table is a sign. It points us to something else. It points us to the love and the grace and the mercy of God. But that is a sign that God doesn't just want you to see. He wants you to taste it. He doesn't just want you to look at it. He wants you to take it and put it in your mouth and chew on it and digest it and experience it. Because in this meal, you know what we get? We get the sight of peerless worth (laughs) that we need to love God above everything else. What, what, What is that sight? It is not the sight of what God is worth to you, actually. It is the sight of what you are worth to God. This table is the sign that you are worth so much to the creator of heaven and earth that he gave everything to have you. That of all the treasures and of all the beauties that he had, he looked down and he saw you and he said, this is my most prized possession. And he gave himself for you. And when you see that, and to the degree that you see that, you know what happens? God starts to become central in your life. To the degree that you see he loved you above everything else, you start to love him above everything else. And that is why God invites us to this table every week to teach us, to train us, to remind us of his love for us so that we can set our hearts and affections on him and so that our lives are not filled with chaos and disorder, but with peace, with beauty, and so that we can be sent out into a chaotic world to be God's agent of peace and blessing. And so in the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body and it is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that is offered to us in this table, a love that you don't just want us to look at, but a love that you invite us to taste. And God, we need to know this love. If we're really going to change, that is really where it starts. It does not start with trying harder and doing better. It starts with receiving. It starts with experiencing. It starts with knowing how great your love is for us, which is what is proclaimed to us at this table and through your son. And so would you give us hearts to receive this morning? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.